Hi, I'm Gus Wallen and this is Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Shore & Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport, and talk about their life's journey and what got them to the position that they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with Betty Clemenko. Betty has climbed some mountains in her life. She's the outlier, the one who doesn't mind being different and embraced her own quirkiness and individuality. Betty calls herself a bogan. She says it with reverence. Betty was born a child of addiction and later was adopted by the couple who later went on to start Westfield. She is now amongst the wealthiest women in Australia and the only one to have her own professional racing car team. She experienced what life was like on the other side of the track with her husband Daniel after her father essentially kicked her out of the family for marrying someone 11 years younger than her that wasn't Jewish. Betty and Daniel now have been married for 32 years. She has had a very interesting life. Betty is generous, she is humble, and she is like no one else you'll ever meet. As for all these podcasts, Shaw and Partners have generously donated 10K to the charity of choice of each of our guests. We discuss who that money goes to in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit. Let's get into our chat with Betty Clemenko. We'd just like to add a bit of a content warning to this episode. There are mentions of suicide throughout this next podcast. If that brings up anything for you, please feel free to give this particular episode a miss or you can always get help from Lifeline on 13 11 14. During sound check for this interview, Betty and I started talking about where she lived and how I'm passionate about mental fitness and our interview started without actually starting. Sometimes these conversations start and you just roll with it because what Betty had to say was so genuine that we didn't want to stop and go back. The one thing we've got in the street is no one who lives in the street has ever committed suicide because we see it. We see the helicopters. We hear them. I lost a friend of mine and I did this show to work out why and then since that moment, I just went, you know what? Brecky Radio was hard work, 3.30 alarm clock and all that jazz. So I went, you know what? I'm going to do this full time now. And that's why I started Gotcha for Life. I want everyone to find someone who's gotcha for life. You can have that warts and all conversation without yeah. any. So, um, yeah, we've been going nearly five years. So My mother committed suicide and I wasn't told till I was in my 30s. Oh. I was 11 at the time. If I'd kind of worked, been a bit more logical at that age, I would have worked it out but I didn't. What did I, you think happened to her? Well, I was at school and I went to Skeggs Starlinghurst and no one picked me up. And then I waited and I waited, 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 waited. I went to the shop next door, Mr Nelson's shop, and no one came and I couldn't remember a phone number. And then I remembered my father's partner's home phone number for some reason and I rang Frank Lowy and I said, Frank, why isn't anyone picking me up? And they went, ah, so someone picked me up. We went to his place. I stayed the night at his place and I thought, this is so strange. I, for some reason I didn't ask. And the next morning my father came and we went to my auntie's place and I, it must have been rehearsed because someone said, oh, John, the phone's for you. So he went to the phone and he said, come with me, to me. And I went, this is weird. So we went into my uncle and auntie's bedroom and then he just tapped on the wood and turned around and said, you know, Betty, your mother's passed away in hospital. So I was told that she'd passed. She had cancer. She had bowel cancer and she, they went everywhere. They went to Switzerland. They went everywhere trying to get a, you know. Cure. A, yeah, cure. Different, or, different look at it. Yeah, exactly. And I think it was just she lived with it for so long and I think she just couldn't live with it anymore. So but that's her choice. Yeah. That is her choice. I knew at the end I said to him, did she commit suicide? And he goes, does it matter? Does it really matter? I said, you know what, it does. I want to know. So he told me. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, don't be sorry. 
it's part of my history which made me like I am. I mean, if my mother had still been alive, I, I probably would have been a totally different person. Mm. I'm not saying I'm glad she died. I'm just saying that that's the way it happened and yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. What was your mum like? My memory of her is getting faded as I get older, but, she, like, she was a beautiful – she looked like – Elizabeth Taylor a bit, mm. and she made her own clothes. But back then in the in the 60s, a lot of women, like, they dressed beautifully and they wore suits during the day and they wore pearls. And she was just a beautiful woman because my brother and I both adopted and we were both blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Everyone else in the family was dark-haired, dark-eyed. And they never told me I was adopted. I was going to ask you that. No, they never told me, but when I was 10... We were at the Lowy's place again and there was a barbecue or something and I had a fight with Peter Lowy and he goes, well, that doesn't matter because I'm not adopted like you. Oh. But this is how my mentality works. I went upstairs because their pool was upstairs. I went upstairs to the adults, turned to my father and said, am I adopted? And he goes, yes. I said, okay. That was the whole conversation. We never talked about it again. That was it? That was it. As far as I was concerned, he was my father, she was my mother and I was happy. It didn't matter to me. It just never mattered. But I did go looking after they both passed away because I wouldn't do it before then. And sometimes you've got to be really careful what you wish for. Did you find your original mum and dad? No, well, she, no, she had passed mother? away. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really – there was no name for father, but they gave me a name later on, and I was the fourth of – four girls. So um, I found, I met two of the girls. But in my family, I'm the eldest. You can't go from being the eldest to being the youngest because there's a mentality thing. Mm. And I think that was the problem, that the eldest daughter saw her, still saw herself as the eldest daughter and had the same alpha tendencies as I do. And you can't put two alphas in a situation and expect them to share the alphaness of the situation. Yes. The two that you met, your blood sisters, did you like them? That's a good question. I liked them, but I don't know if I had met them somewhere else that I would have been friends with them. We were just different lives, different mentalities, different everything else. They were very beachy, north coast. I was... Eastern Suburbs girl, and back then I was a different woman even to what I am now. I met them when I was about 49, 48. I'm a totally different person again. I like to evolve. It's this great book that my friend talked to me about called Second Mountain, where you think you've sort of got to where you're meant to do in your life, and all of a sudden you get there and you go, oh, there's another peak over there, and it's up to you whether or not you want to have another crack. Oh, sure. Is that who you are? Is that how you see uh, it? No, I'm about up to my fifth mountain. Okay. Which is really funny because I always used to say, you know, you've got to climb your own mountain. And we were living in a different house and the phone rang and I picked up the phone I said, hello. And it was all staticky, like... There was this little voice at the end going, hello, 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 is Ben there? I said, there's no Ben here. I can't hear you. He goes... Why isn't Ben there? I said, I don't even know who the fuck Ben is. <laughs> Tell me, why? Wh- where are you? And he goes, I'm at the top of Mount Everest. And I see, he was my one satellite dish answer. Oh. Like, that was the one person that he was going to ring. Who, he, he rang the wrong number? No, he rang the right number, but we just moved into that house and we got <sighs> that number. Oh. 
So he said, well, who are you? And I said, my name's Betty. And he goes, well, Betty, you are now my chosen person to ring from the top of Mount Everest on a satellite phone. He said, I've got 30 seconds left. I said, well, what's it like? He said, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing. I can't breathe, but it's great. <laughs> I'm like, okay, Ben, I'm so proud of you, Ben. Yeah, oh, and I, we're you having this intensely, you know, personal conversation with someone I, I will never met. I don't know who he is. I don't know his last name. But it was really intense and personal. That's incredible. And I put the phone down. I said, you are not going to believe this. <laughs> Can you talk us through your five mountains if, if there's sort of a, an easy way to do that? <laughs> well, growing up as the daughter of someone who, like, became as big as my father and, and started Westfield, that was one mountain. I always knew that I wasn't the same as everyone else. You know, I was the one who would say, oh, I've got a great idea, you know, when I was little. And then involved going into the house that was being built next door and using the bricks to build something and always they fell down and someone got hurt or setting fire to the side of the house or trying a cigar or, you know, that was, I was always that child. So then I got into the end of school, like high school and everything else. And I climbed my mountain there where I was able to finish school without burning the school down. Mm-hmm. That was a big mountain for me. So it was tough times at school. Yeah, and then then my father said I had to go to Miss Hale's secretarial college. So I didn't want to – I wanted to be a nurse, you know. I could see myself being, you know, really saving these handsome men and doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things. So I went to Miss Hale's secretarial college where I got kicked out of every class but typing. So all I did was go there and type all day. Then I went from there – I spent about three months in Israel and then came back. I got engaged to a soldier. I just thought it was very romantic. And my father said, I'll buy you a new car. So being the shallow person that I was, I was, like, I was only... What happened to him then? I was only 19 or something. I don't know. What was his, his name? His name was Noah. Poor Noah. Yeah, poor Noah. I wonder if he ever found love. Uh, look, I, I think so. Later on, someone said that they'd heard about him or from him. Then I went and opened a shop in Parramatta. Mm. It was called a gift affair. I worked very hard there. That was a mountain. I, I did the shop by myself and everything else. Then I got married to my first husband, and he was 10 years older than me. I always say that because he was born in 1949. I was born in 1959. My now husband was born in 1969, mm. and my ex-husband's wife, was born in 1979. Okay. So our family goes up and down with the ages. And my father was 25 years older than his second wife. Okay. Who's the mother of my sister. So my children are closer in age to my sister than, you know, she is to me. So is that all the mountains or have we No, no. And then I went to, to super, then I went into motorsport and I went, I did my GT mountain where we did one Bathurst and we won the championship and I thought that's it. We'll just keep on going there. And then I, for some stupid reason, I said, hmm, what about V8s? <laughs> and we joined V8s, which was going from a gentlemanly race six times a year to a not-so-gentlemanly race at that time 16 times a year. So you were always flying. You were always on a plane. You were always in a hotel. You were always, I swear, I got lines on my face in a year that I probably would have got only gotten 10 years. and But it was good. I, I met a lot of people. 
And now I've got to that stage where I just want to calm down a little bit. We have a, a new Shannon who's such a – she's another angel. And she's our GM and she, I want to pass that. She's extremely good-looking lady, mind you. Very okay. tall, blonde, very good-looking. So she's she becomes the face of Erebus now. I just sit back and be the grandmother. That's my thing in life. I want to get to a point where I'm sitting on my Australiana porch. <laughs> yeah. In a rocking chair with the moonshine by my leg and a <laughs> rifle across my lap. That's it. I've even gone, I had all this jewellery which I'd never wear and I sent it to my jeweller and I said, make me an Australian flag in diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> Has that happened yet? I haven't got it yet, but they're finding it a bit hard to actually, in a you know, smallish ring to, even though it's a big ring, to put, make an Australian flag, but they'll get there. Talking about... Racing, because it's such a male-dominated thing, isn't it? You must have heard this question a thousand times, but how were you invited in? The fact that you were successful and, uh, and a fresh face in it, did that mean anything? At that point in time, they wanted new manufacturers, and we were already working with Mercedes, so well, AMG, and we ended up going with AMG. That's another long story, but I put a lot of money into, into the R&D, and the car was brilliant. But then they change their mind. It's like going into Gen 3 and everyone changes their cars, but then they decide to change it and got to dumb it all down. So I spent two or three years dumbing my engine down just to race equally with everyone else. And it was costing a lot of money every year to dumb, dumb down these engines. So that's why we changed to Holden. And it was much, much cheaper. And, you know, people tell me it's a male-dominated industry. No, there just happens to be a lot of men in it. It's not dominated. There are a lot of women in that sport. You just don't see them. You know, they're the media girls, and I'm I'm not talking about grid girls, I'm talking about actual media, and they take care of everything behind the scenes, especially in supercars, the actual organisation of supercars. There's a lot of women who work in there. And I think we actually get angry when people say, oh, we want to do this thing on women in motorsport. Well, no, there's just people in motorsport. Because it's an, not an industry where you can go in there, and I've said this a thousand times, but you can't go in there and say, I'm a good mechanic and I can do the cars and I can change the tyres. If you can't do it, you're going to be out the door in 10 seconds. You've got to be able to do what you say you can do. And Un- under pressure? Under pressure, under everything else. So it's you can't fake it till you make it there. Mm. You just have to go in and do your job. And... Everyone romanticises it and makes it so, I want to work in motorsport. No, you don't, (laughs) unless you're a bit of a sadist because you never see anything because you arrive at the tracks and it's dark, you spend the whole day at track working your brains out and you go home in the dark at about 11 or 12 at night. You sleep in the hotel, you have a shower, you go to sleep, you wake up, you go back to the track and you eat breakfast, lunch, dinner at the track. Everything is about the track. Then on Sunday night, when you cannot keep your eyes open, you get on a plane home and you get home really late and then you got to get up the next morning, especially with me at that time. I had to get up and work, in normal work. So it's a hard industry to be in and you're not judged by whether you're a man or a woman. It's about how you handle the stress and how you handle everything else and there is a, a, a club, but everyone's in that one club. It's not a man's club. It's not a woman's club. When you see them working 24 hours on a car that's, that's hit the wall and then do a whole day of work again, there's this pride that comes up. and There's this pride that goes, I love these guys. They just, 
and I've had a very big, long conversation with my biological children, that when I say I have a motorsport family, it's a, on the other side. There's t- two families. There's my family family and my motorsport family. Is that why you love it so much? It's, it's that connection? Yeah, but the funny thing is my favourite part is when the car is in the garage and you can watch them fiddling with the car, trying to make it better, everything else. Once it goes out of the garage, it's not up to us anymore. It's up to the driver. You know, you can't help it. If the driver ends up in the wall, it ends up in the wall. Actually, it's a really good job to have to get used to rejection because there's only going to be, out of the 25 cars, one winner. Who cares who came second or third? One winner. And so every time you go racing and you have three races, normally three races a weekend, there's only three times you can be a winner and that's it. You have to learn to be not, you know, to be rejected Mm. or to be not to come in first. And, you know, it's very hard to to win a race in supercars because you have the top three teams or the top, you know, whichever teams are at that time and to get past those is very hard. Mm. And if you do, it's a big celebration. You know, you might only get two podiums in a year, but that keeps you up the top of the grid which gives you a better garage so it's the fight I like I like the fight I like to be I actually like to be the underdog I like people to underestimate me and I like to go out there and just and win you know I'm not ashamed to say you know I'm there to win that's what I'm there for of course when you won Bathurst (laughs) like my brother is like he you know every race all the races through Europe motorbikes Formula One, V8s, everything. And I said, I was talking to you. He goes, oh, can I come along? I said, no, you can't. <laughs> but he said, can you just tell her I love her that she puts her money where her mouth is and she's fair income. Would that be a way that you would nod and say? It's- yeah, it's like I said, I was on a TV program and I said, yeah, I'm the, I'm the wealthiest bogan in Australia. <laughs> I mean, I am. I, at heart, I am a bogan. I, I, and I say it with reverence. I was in heaven. You know when you know a woman says, oh, we were in Los Angeles and we were in Rodeo Drive and I walked past Chanel and I walked past this and I walked past that. That moment for me was in Florida, in Daytona, and we stayed in an RV and I walked in there and we rented an RV and it was just, just as you come out the tunnel into the centre part of Daytona and you could see all the cars coming. So I never stayed in a in an RV before, so I was excited. (laughs) And I was in heaven. I was crying. I literally was crying. Tears of joy. Tears of joy. And Daniel had brought with him like a hard drive or something, and it had, for some reason, it had the GT Bathurst race when we won Bathurst. So we put that on the outside television and just left it going. We didn't have the Bathurst win from... The V8, but for some reason we had the – and people were just stopping and watching and said, where's that? Oh, is that Bathurst? I'm thinking, how do these bloody rednecks know what Bathurst is? Like it was pure redneck. And I, every morning I would get up and I'd park myself outside the RV, put my feet up on the cooler, and I'd watch the world go by because across from us were these guys that were celebrating – it was a bachelor weekend. Yeah. And every morning they'd get up and they had this baseball bat the lid, the top of it's unscrewed, and they would drink beer. Then they would put the pipe down their throat. They would just drink copious amounts of beer, put the baseball bat down, put their forehead on the baseball bat, run around in circles, and then have to 
do something. I can't even Fall remember. Over. I was already <laughs> la- I was already on the floor laughing by then. And this happened every morning that we were there. And then we'd been invited there by uh, Roger Penske. And so they would send a little car, a little like a golf buggy, and would pick us up and take us there. And I'd have to – we always waited for lunch – when Roger was there, because when he wasn't there, they tried to feed you gourmet. But when they knew Roger was coming, they'd put out hot dogs and hamburgers and chicken nuggets. Proper so, food. Proper food. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, that was that was Nirvana. I mean, that was the best three days of my life. And I didn't even feel guilty because my son lives in Florida and he lives in Orlando. But they had just happened to have booked a cruise for that weekend. Oh. That we so were, you didn't have to go. I didn't. I didn't have and to see them. Yeah, I was like, "Oh, that's such a shame." <laughs> you got to do exactly what you uh, wanted to do, and the fact that Daytona and I are the same age. We were born in the same year. Okay, so I've nearly done everything that I want. There's only one more place I want to go. And what place is that? Indianapolis. Yeah, the Indy. That's where I want to go. Look, give me eating out the back of a truck, a bit of flannel, a bit of beer. A lot of cars, a lot of grease and, you know, just give me all that and I am in heaven because these people have this tendency to to like people for who they are as in the type of person they are. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we got asked to have dinner with two people down. They said, oh, you want to come and have a – they eat out of their boot and they call it something, I don't know, it's just my husband would know. And they invite you to come and eat out and they cook barbecue and it's all sitting in their, in the back of their ute or in their boot and you eat out of there. And I said, okay, went in Rome. <laughs> so we went. Nice people. They were getting drunk. They made their own moonshine and we were drinking cocktails with the moonshine. So we was were getting nice? – we were pretty pissed. It good? was really nice. Okay. And this goes on for about an hour before the food's ready and then they bathe the barbecue and they put it in the boot and we're, we're all enjoying it. And he goes, just before we eat – and I said, yes. He says, do you mind if we say a prayer? I'd had like five moonshine drinks, so I was pretty happy saying a prayer. I said, sure, go ahead. They were Jehovah Witnesses. Oh. And we did the whole Jehovah thing, and I'm like, this is just a mind warp. <laughs> but they were such nice people that made moonshine and were Jehovah's Witnesses, eating out of the back of their, the boot of the trunk. And I just went, this is life. Mm. This is perfect. Better than any dining I've ever had. Like-minded people. That's oh what it's all about. Oh, my God. There's just something so liberating and freeing about being among a group of people who don't give a crap who you do, how much you have. If you've got enough to buy a bit of alcohol and a bit of, you know, melted cheese sticks, then you're fine. The oath. I went to the most poshest restaurant ever with a few of my mates on our 50th. It was called the something la- the French Laundry, it was called. And a mate of ours said, oh, mate, this is going to cost us $1,500 US. Anyway, the chef came out and he was explaining this meal and it was small little bites and stuff. And I said to him, I don't want to be rude or anything, but I'd just like some cheese on toast and maybe some donuts or something. And it was a bit of a joke and everyone laughed. Well, this chef came out with cheese on toast oh. and donuts and he goes, if that's what you want, I just want you to be happy eating the meal. I still I think I got charged whatever they got charged, but that's what wow. we had. And that was just nice that he stepped up to the plate for that. That's very cool. You must have heaps of moments in your life where people know you and they try to impress you. They try to make you a part of something, to get you to love something so you can get so they can get your support. Yeah. How do you how do you make sure that you just support the people that you want to support and not get caught up with the In the beginning I tried to support everyone and nearly drove myself insane. 
But then I realised that there are layers and there are people who don't really, they're just doing it because it's a thing to do at the time. And, you know, you meet someone once, especially on track, you'll meet someone once, you say, hi, how are you? You have your photo taken. And then the next time you get there, they're all of a sudden your best friend, they want to sit out the back with you. And I'm like, well, who are you? And they're like, oh, don't you remember? You remember me? And I'm like, that was 365 days ago. But I have worked it out. I have worked it out. I've met a lot, a lot of people. Like I meet thousands of people every year. And if a woman comes up, do you remember me? I don't want to be rude. So I go, yeah, but your hair's changed. <laughs> How, I mean, what woman doesn't change her hair in 12 months? <laughs> and then the children, she says, do you remember my kids? And I go, oh, my God, this is like 100% logic. My God, you've grown. <laughs> what am I going to say? No. I do remember in some form back in the back of my mind, if I think long enough, I will remember them because they were the kid that or she was the woman that. I don't remember the name, but I do remember the person. And I've always loved the fans. The fans are a big, were a big part. And uh, motorsport life changed for me when COVID came in because my job was literally to go there and to, besides being there for the team, I was there for the fans and I would... I would do my Betty thing where I'd jump out on the track with when they're doing a track walk and I would go out there and do a little dance and I like to see people smile and that was my way of doing it. And COVID came in and there was no one there anymore and it wasn't the same for me. And it, I mean, I love the racing. I, it's the most important thing, but what made the racing for me was the fans and to get have no fans, it just took that shine off the top Hmm. for me and I just felt like a fifth wheel because I don't work on the cars. Everything is already set up weeks beforehand. There's nothing much you do once you get to that garage. And I was sitting there like a fifth wheel and I felt bad. I felt like, oh, what are we going to do now? I'll go out the back, get to the front, go out the back, get to the front. Then normally you'd be out there with the – Hunters yeah, and the exactly, fans exactly. And hearing, hearing the noise and the and stories the and, and and how they got involved in motorsport and one of the best ones I ever heard was this woman and she said I just want to thank you and I said oh what for she goes I was listening to you you were speaking on on my father loves the V8s and you were speaking on the on the show one day and my father passed away and I've come here alone. And I bought myself a ticket in the grandstand and I've never done that. And I'm, I'm here alone. And I was just gobsmacked. And she said, it took a big thing for me to come here alone, sit in the stands, grandstands alone. And there was a couple walking past about the same age and they heard it and they, they turned around and they said, well, you're not alone now, love. And they put their arm around and said, come on, let's go and get some lunch and I saw her at the end of the day and she said, I've been with these people all day and then we had more people and then more people. I have new friends. Yeah. And I went, that's V8. That is what V8 does. That I call it V8, supercars. Yeah. But that's what it can do for you. You can go in there alone and come out with 100 new friends. And it's not because you were drunk in a pub or anything else. It was because you all loved motorsport. You love the noise and the and the people and the atmosphere and everything else, and you have something to talk about. I love my sport, but at the moment it is just it's friendless, as in fanless. <laughs> yeah, we'll get better though. 
Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shure and Partners Financial Services. Sure and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Sure and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates, and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at sureandpartners.com.au. That's S H A W for sure. Sure and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. How did the name Erebus come about? I used to watch very late, like two weeks later, F1. Because it was on in the middle of the night? Well, no, because it didn't come. It was recorded and then brought to Australia and then we yeah. watched it. We bought a car and it, it was a Porsche and it ended up being like two months late and they said, look, we can't give you any money off but we can give you a course at Mount Cotton. So Daniel and I went to Mount Cotton and did this. I'm doing this very short. Did this course and we started talking to a guy called Peter Hackett and – we started sponsoring him because I was re- I really enjoyed what I did that day. And so we started sponsoring him and then we went from sponsoring him to sponsoring the team to buying a car to becoming the owners of a team. And me, not knowing Australian slang because I grew up in the eastern suburbs, called her team Cactus. <laughs> and the commentator would always say, well, I hope they're not Cactus. And I went, well, we are Cactus. And... Then someone felt sorry for me and told me what it meant. And uh, then we went from being cactus to being smoking angel. And then smoking angel didn't really work for V8. So I went to, or or GTs. And then, so I went to being Erebus. And that means? Erebus was the god of darkness. (laughs) Betty, can we circle back and ask about your adoption? How did that happen? Like when I was adopted, my father walked in, there was a room of children and they could go along the rows and just pick a child. I think there was like 30 kids in the room when I was adopted, so there's 29 very sad kids out there. (laughs) What a beautiful moment for you, though, to be picked and now to have this life. Well, I was was born a child of addiction and back then they didn't understand it and apparently he liked me because I was laughing. That I was giggling, and I wasn't giggling. I was, I was apparently going through withdrawal. That's why my fingers are stunted because of the the drugs that she was on. I didn't notice. Now that you yeah. now, now you're showing me, right? Tiny little fingers. I'm um, from knee to ankle. I'm stunted from elbow to arm. I'm like here. I actually have the body of a six foot woman, but my extremities are shortened. Right. Like most people, it's from there to there. Uh, nearly the same length as from there to there. I'm big from there to there, but very short from there. My knee yeah. is very far down. Has that ever bothered you? No, no. Sometimes when my husband says, you got sausage fingers, <laughs> and I say, give me the tomato sauce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got to laugh at life and what it gives you. It gives you with one hand, it takes away from the other, and if you can find that balance, that's then you, you're on the right path. Yeah. You know. Is that what you teach your own? Kids, what sort of mum are you? Oh, I'm a shocking mum. Oh no, I, look, I'm not a shocking mother, but I wouldn't. I was the mother that took them to the sci-fi conferences, and we made some really good friends through the sci-fi conferences because I so love why sci-fi. This, yeah, that's your. I mother. love all my children, and we went on this set of Stargate, and I have one son who's a Stargater, one son who's a Star Trekker, and mm. one son who is a Star Warer, and we met. I think Richard, Stargate very underrated, just quietly. Yes, 
we met Richard Dean Anderson. Oh, wow. So me being my age, couldn't give a crap about Stargate. All I've got going through my head is MacGyver, 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 MacGyver. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he said, oh, who are those people? And they said, oh, they're the Aussies, you know, because we were standing in the set watching them do the, the scene. And he said, oh, the Aussies, okay. And he just, and then someone looked at me and said, he usually tells them everyone to get out, but he didn't. I said, yes, because we're Aussies. Yeah, Aussies <laughs> but, are cool. Yeah, and then 10 minutes later he comes in with all this watermelon. I don't know why watermelon, but he came in with this all this watermelon. Yeah, it's hot. Have some watermelon. And I'm just like, first time in my life, mind you, and my heart's going. Dum, dum, yeah, dum, I dum, love dum, you. Dum. I want to tell you yeah. I love you. It's only happened twice <laughs> in my life. And, and the, other, the one, other one? This is a really sad story. Not oh. sad story, but it's for Emotional. me. No, no, no. It, just, it makes me look very pathetic. <laughs> Last year, my sister, who's the chairman, was chairwoman of, she does the function for the children's hospital, the gold dinner. So she was putting on the gold dinner. So, you know, I really don't want to go to these things. But I went. And I always think free champagne. <laughs> so I went. It's actually the world's most expensive champagne, I'm assuming. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> look, champagne tastes like champagne to me. <laughs> Except maybe there are a few that don't. So anyway, we go to this function. And I'm standing there and I looked at it just through the peripheral of my eye and my heart starts thumbing. Daniel, Daniel, look who's at that other table, look who's at the other table. And he goes, Ugh, knowing that I'm going to do something really embarrassing. I said, Daniel, I'm fangirling. I'm hot. I'm either going through menopause again or I'm really fangirling. And my sister was at the next table and it was really loud. So I walk up to my sister. I said, Monica, I'm fangirling. And she goes, don't talk to her. I said, Who's her? Don't talk to her. Because, I mean, my boss sister had all this stuff going on. I said, who would I talk to? And then I thought she said Delta. I said, why would I want to talk to Delta? I'm not fangirling over Delta. And then we just couldn't hear each other. So I thought, eh. So Carl Stefanovic was talking to someone. And as I walked past, he said, hi, Betty. I said, hi. So I started talking. You know, you just start talking between the the three of us. Then Carl went away, so I was left with this other person. And I'm talking to the other person. I mean, I came up to his belly button, and it was Chris Hemsworth. Oh, wow. So I'm talking to him, and I said, look, listen, is it rude if I go up to someone and tell them I'm fangirling? So I'm having this whole conversation with Chris Hemsworth. So Chris Hemsworth wasn't the one no, who was right. No, But he's someone I can ask if it's rude to go up to someone and say, I'm fangirling over you. And he said, well, who is it? I said, it's Hamish Blake. <laughs> Hamish wouldn't mind. He said, no, do you want me to introduce I said, no, don't introduce me. Don't be silly. I will go over there and introduce you myself. So I was sweating. So I walked over and said, hi. My name- I never in my life have I been done this. Usually I go in there like a, a, you know, a bull in a china shop and I just stick my hand in someone's hand and shake away and that's it. My heart was in my mouth and, you know, I'm just – a Lego tragic, as you can see over in that corner. Yeah. But I introduced myself and he goes, he has coffee up here and I sometimes see him when he has coffee up up here. I said, I'm fangirling. And I was like really, I was playing with my fingers. Finally got talking to him and his wife and, you know, the whole fangirl thing went. You know, it only lasted all of 20 minutes. Yeah. But it was something that I hadn't felt for years and – then I, I was telling someone, and they couldn't say, so you were talking to Chris Hemsworth about fangirling over <laughs> Hamish Blake? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Was there someone who didn't believe in you that you wanted to prove them wrong in the stuff that you've my done? My father. That's it, my father. My father was an old Hungarian, 
and old Hungarians were, well, you went through the concentration camp. And, you know, women belonged in the kitchen. And I'd be in a board meeting with him. You know, I mean, he, he hired me and he wanted me to learn about the business. But it would be like in front of everyone. I used to weigh 130 kilos. So I actually think I'm really skinny now. But 130 kilos. And he'd say, I'd be walking out of the room because your bottom looks fat in that. And then, you know, it was, he didn't understand the mental torture that he put me through. But it was actually quite good because if I can survive, I call them the Hungarian mafia, I could survive anyone. And that made me very tough, very tough. So, yeah, my dad. How does a normal day look for you? It usually involves a lot of dogs. I have two British bulldogs and a French bulldog. <laughs> that One of the British bulldogs is um, disabled. He's much smaller and he's got a twisted spine and he has hip displacement. He's got heart problems, lung problems, ch- uh, liver problems. He's died three times. What's his name? His name's Bowie, as in David Bowie. Yeah. That's because his front two legs bow. Okay. And then I've got a French bulldog called Buddy, and he is the security guard of the house. Yeah. And then the other English bulldog is called Buster. Oh. And Buster is Buster, and he is the typical English bulldog, and he just wants cuddles and kisses and love and tension and where the little one will jump off the couch and say, look at me, I can twist my spine. <laughs> he does, he jumps. He twists in the air, lands on his back and looks at me like, ah, I'm not dead. I get it, I'm a dog man myself. Your first tattoo, because you say you have lots. What was your first? And, my and, first tattoo? And why do you love tats so much? My first tattoo was, I've got it here, it's my husband and my initials. We won't put our names, but it's really cool because mine's a B and he's a D and it's a ribbon. And it's got the B at the top and the D. And I said, well, if I ever divorced you, I just put an A in the middle. <laughs> but we were married in Vegas. He was 19 and I was 30. So, okay. Yeah. So, you know, ages is just – and I hate when people say age is just a number. No, you are what you are. And you reckon he's, he's a keeper? Well, two days ago we had our 32nd wedding anniversary. Not bad for a second marriage. Not bad at all. Do you do your own groceries? Uh, yes and no. Okay. Sonia does most of my, I, I make a list. Let's talk about Sonia just quickly because oh, Sonia's Sonia. been with you for 25 years. Yes, she's my you personal You love her assistant. and trust her more than anything. More than anything. She, ha- she keeps my world together. I refuse to have do anything on my phone because I hate phones. So my diary is on a blackboard in the kitchen. Old school. And on a calendar, you know, the ones you get from the chemist? Yeah. It's written on that as well. Okay. And she sends me a message on my phone. You have da-da-da-da-da in an hour, half an hour, 15 minutes if she's not here. Where did you guys meet? Oh, she was the nanny. She was my children's nanny. And then when we didn't need a nanny anymore, she kind of just flipped over to looking after me. Do the kids love her as well? Oh, yeah. She's Sonia. She's just... the best. Yeah, she's – I don't – I could never think of her as not being part of my family, you know. Yeah. She's made a lot of tough times easier. Everyone needs a Sonia. Everybody needs a Sonia. <laughs> What's a personality trait of your own that you don't like? I tend to give people a lot of leeway and then regret it. And then I go, why did I do that? Again. Again. Yeah, Again. Right. Yeah. Again. Okay. And what's the trait that you just love about yourself? You went, God, I'm glad I'm I can like put this. up with my husband. <laughs> 32 years last week. Well, we worked it out. There's no one else that can put up with either of us. 
we were together 24 hours a day, seven days a week, especially during motorsport because he was a music producer and he had his own company and everything else and they were in Darlinghurst and they were doing amazingly and he said, okay, I'll give you two years and that was eight years ago. Okay. When you first met him, you said he was 19. Yes, he was 19. Was it love at first sight sort of thing or you just went, actually, no, this guy's w- really cool? And, no, and- it was, it was, there was nothing. It was, yes, we've been married for five lifetimes and this is the person I need to be with and my father threw me out of the family. I, I ended up with nothing living in Matraville on, he made $19,000 a year gross and that's what we lived on and I have never loved a time more than I've loved that time. It's great to have money again, but it was also good to live without money because it changed my whole mentality. I went from being a princess where the fairies picked up the clothes and the fairies did this and the fairies did that to understanding what actually a fairy is and and having to be my own fairy. Mm. And he worked for the Australian Defence Force down at Garden Island. So I had to get up at 4.30, make him his sandwiches, his lunch. This is something I'd never done in my life. We got to a point sometimes where we would go to the supermarket and wait for that trolley to come out, the way the meat's just on that date, mm. so that my kids could have sausages. We didn't eat the sausages, but we gave them to the kids. So we had no money. My father still paid for the education of the children. That was it. But it was something that if I hadn't have done it, I wouldn't be who I am today. I wouldn't understand my fans. I wouldn't understand where they come from, how hard their lives are how much they had to save up to get it buy a ticket. And that's what people forget. These people, when I first started, it was like $300 for a weekend. That's a lot. And then they buy the, the, the gear? gear, the merchandise. You could be $1,000 for a weekend. It's like, oh, my God, that is just so much money for someone. And it gave me a very good respect and a very healthy way to look at people. And, you know, I was able to look at these mothers that come in and, you know, and the kids might be a bit dirty or their shoe's a bit scruffy or they've got a hole in their shoe. And instead of looking down my nose at them, I just kind of went, hey, come here. And I'd take them in the garage so they're already going through the roof with excitement and I'd get some race tape and I'd put the race tape around their shoes so they would stop flapping. Oh. But that's the way I just – now I respected these people because I know the shoe's flapping because they just can't afford a new pair of shoes for them. Yeah. So – Can you tell us why – you were thrown out of the family for that period of time? Yeah, like- because I married someone who was 10 years younger than me, and, which was really stupid because his ex-wife was 25 years younger than him, but that was a man and a woman, not a woman and the younger man. Oh. He wasn't Jewish. He was from the wrong side of the tracks. He was from uh, Matraville or Little Bay. Yeah, from Little Bay. And it was just all wrong. And it was wrong. If you looked at the stats, you'd go... There's no way this is going to survive. This won't survive. And for years, his my father's friends were all like, no, watch it, they'll get divorced next year. They'll get divorced next year. And 32 years later, we're still together. And You knew? Oh, I knew. I just knew, and it, which was really weird. Because to look at him, I would never have thought so, but it wasn't about looking at him. It was looking in him that got me. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a small woman either. And here's a 19-year-old marrying a woman with two children who gets kicked out of the family and everything else. Oh, no, first my father sent me to America for a year. Trying to sort you out. Yeah, with my children. They went to school there and everything else. And then one day Daniel Daniel was not meant to ring me like as if he would know. 
And Daniel rang me and said, what are you doing? I said, oh, look, I'm just taking the kids to school. He says, do you want to go for a drive? I said, why would I want to go for a drive? He says, otherwise I've got to sit at this bloody airport all day. I said, what airport? He goes, Los Angeles. <laughs> so he arrived and I said to the nanny, look, I'm going to go away for the weekend. So we went away. We went to Vegas and got married in Vegas. Went to Reno for our honeymoon, which saved my soul, my my soul, because my father sent a rabbi later on to ask me if I'd got married in Reno because I'd used a credit card in Reno oh. and said, did you get married in Reno? And I just kind of went, no, no, I swear on everything holy, I did not get married in Reno. No, I got married in Vegas. Was it Elvis? <laughs> no, it was the little white ca- little candle. Yeah, the, whatever it was, I can't remember. It was the... I laughed going down there. I mean, we hadn't had anything to drink because he was underage. Of course, yeah. So there was the reverend, the reverend's wife, who thank like she was a very big woman and she was sitting at an organ going dunk, 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 dunk. <laughs> and I had plastic flowers in my hand. It was the funniest thing. And it was just the reverend and Daniel and me and plastic flowers. And I thought, this is how it's meant to be. So we did it. We got married and then we had to go and stay in the hotel and order room service just to get the alcohol because he couldn't go out because he was... Couldn't go to a bar because no, he was two years under 21, yeah. right? No. Exactly. So add on about six months and when we came back to, to Australia and then I got kicked out of the, the family, we got married again for everyone else that was here. So we actually had another wedding and then my father took us back and Daniel converted and then we had another wedding at the synagogue. You've so we got married three. three. We've been married three times. And why did Dad – was Dad just needed to see it after a period no. of time? He just went, look – No, his cousin the- from Israel said, are you nuts? To my father. He said, he treats her like a queen. He's not an alcoholic. What more do you want? She's in love. He loves her. You can see it. And then after Daniel converted, it was like, eh, okay, it's just the age thing now. So we actually believe in the force and not the force be with you force. We just believe that there's something higher than us. Yeah. And I don't need a middleman to get there. I think you're doing enough good down here to get a seat <laughs> at the, on that plane. Oh, I don't know. Some days I I'll even, I make myself laugh. <laughs> well, the thing is you're doing a lot stupid. of stupid. You're doing a lot of good stuff, so. You know, I try. It's lovely to talk to you. We need to finish off with our final five questions which are sort of quick fire. Yes. Quick fiery type questions. Your favourite holiday destination? Anywhere where there's snow. Favourite book? Sci-fi fantasy. Your? Actually, I like The Art of War. Oh, yeah. Okay. I have read it many times. Favourite quote? He who has health has hope and he who has hope has everything. Oh, I love that. Is that your own? No, no, no. I found my father loved quotes and I found that for him. I don't know where. And uh, he took that on as his own. Oh, that's beautiful. Favourite movie? Alien. The first one? The original? The original. <laughs> and as part of this podcast, we're giving $10,000 to a charity of each guest choice. So who would you like to give the 10000 to? And what do you think that they will do with that, with that money? A food bank. Food bank. Food bank. Beautiful. Because that go- does go to food. And they use all the money to to feed the homeless. Yeah. And in Australia, unfortunately, we don't think about our own homeless or our own problems, the family under the bridge first, 
I suggest any family that's stuck under the bridge, go overseas and you'll get the money. Unfortunately, and I'm I know it sounds terrible, but that's the way I am. I, I charity begins at home. Yeah. And my and homes Australia. So it shouldn't be about what state you live in or a border that doesn't exist. It should be about being an Australian and allowing Australians to help other Australians. Beautiful. A lot of meals will go for $10,000, so we'll make sure that money goes to them. And, Betty, thank you so much for, A, letting us in your home, but, B, just being so candid and honest. And It's been a lovely chat, so thanks for your time. Anytime. That was Betty Klaminko. What an interesting and multifaceted woman. I really liked her. I loved the fact we were sitting in a home. She was having a ciggy. She was just chilling back, having a good time, just telling, you know, really authentic stories and what a life that she had. So what I really learned from her is being authentic and sticking up for what you believe is right will eventually get you the success that you need. So just loved her. Coming up in the next episode of Not An Overnight Success is Peter Costello. Peter was the longest standing treasurer of Australia. For a long time, there have been rumours about whether he had a deal to become the Prime Minister after John Howard, but things took a bit of an unexpected direction. Peter answers a lot of that in this chat. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please share it with someone that you think may enjoy it too. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Sean Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Sean Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Sean Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.